In light of what Jeff just shared, these two songs take on an even deeper um, meaning of surrendering our lives to Christ and His calling. You. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Study Colossians again uh, this week. I want to start off by just giving you a quick recap of uh, some of the last sermons, just so we gain a a sense of the context that we arrive at today. We're going to be discussing Colossians 3, 12 to 17, specifically verses 15, 16, and 17. Remember, chapter 3 is a chapter about overcoming sin and living out the change that has occurred within within those who are in Christ. It's a chapter about the, the, the practical lifestyle changes that result from a changed mindset. A mindset on things above. Chapter 3, verse 2. A type of mind like that, a mindset on things above, looks differently and grows in holiness and in obedience to God's commands. A mindset on heaven looks forward with joyous anticipation for the revealing of Christ which will be the culminating event for those who have lived for Him. The realized goal of their faith. Being glorified with Jesus and rewarded with the pleasures that come with His presence. Chapter 3, verse 4. We've talked in previous verses about this whole idea of laying aside. Verses 5 to 11 was about that. Practically speaking, the person with a mind set on things above removes old sinful thoughts, attitudes, words, and deeds because they are the things that enslaved them before they knew Jesus. They're the things that invite the wrath of God that's coming to punish those who refuse Christ and remain in disobedience to Him. Chapter 3, verse 6. These things are to be viciously and violently put to death by the Christian. The imagery is strong. The Christian should not cozy up to sin and tolerate sin in word, in deed, or in action. They're to be devoted to the destruction of their former manner of living. The life of a Christian can be accurately described as a sin killer. Paul uses other imagery, though, to describe overcoming sin. And he uses the imagery of garments. Garments that are unfit or old, that are supposed to be laid aside and discarded. So which brought us to the things that we needed to talk about last week, which was the corollary to taking off those old garments, which is putting on new garments, verses 12 to 14. In place of the old sinful ones, we put on new garments of righteousness. We trade the grave clothes for the grace clothes, to quote Warren Rearsby. So this is where we were at last week. We talked about the reasons that Paul gave in verses 12 to 14 that motivate us to put on new righteous garments. God has done these things for us that motivate us. God chose us. God set us apart. God made us His beloved. God forgave us. These four realities motivate us to put on the new garments that we talked about last week. And those garments were a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the new garments that are bound together by love. These are our new clothes. These are our new lifestyles that match the new life that we have inside in Christ. These are the new, and these new garments have relational ramifications. And we talked about that as well last week. Since we are compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient, we are supposed to bear with one another, right? To have a degree of tolerance with one another. We forgive 
one another because Christ forgave us. And this is where we left off last week. And so we pick up this week to cover verses 15, 16, and 17. And um, the outline for today is very simple, and I'll give it to you in, in just a moment. But first, I want to draw your attention back to May the 14th. You can remember May the 14th, right? It was a Sunday. I was preaching that week. You remember that sermon. It was on chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. I know you recall every word that I said back then. Um, I talked about the mysterious heresy that's in those verses. It was threatening the Colossian church. And you can recall possibly that at the end of that sermon, I pointed out that Paul's method of dealing with the false teaching was to remind the church of their own responsibility to confront the heresy and to call the Colossians to actively defend themselves and resist the false teachers. If you remember back in chapter 2 and verses 4, 8, 16, and in 18, Paul was warning of those who would delude them or take them captive or kidnap them with false doctrine, those who would judge them illegitimately, and those who would defraud them. So if the Colossians didn't stand up to these people, these things would happen. They were at risk of a delusion, of being taken captive, of being judged, being defrauded. So Paul's counsel was for the Colossians to stubbornly refuse to let these imposters do damage to their faith and their fellowship. Resist them. Don't let them do what they're intending to do. Well, here in verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul is telling them that while they were to grudgingly stand against these wrong ideas and these deceitful teachers, they're supposed to gratefully surrender to something else, to someone else, to Jesus. They were, and and just like them, we are now to surrender to Jesus with gratitude toward him in three ways that the text lays out for us today. So this is the outline for today, right? We're we're to surrender to Jesus gratefully for the peace of Christ. We're We're to surrender to the word of Christ and we're to surrender to the name of Christ. Very simple outline. So the risen new man gratefully surrenders to these three things. And surrendering to these three things are keys to sanctification, right? Growing in holiness. When we surrender to these three things, they bring victory over sin. And they allow us to grow in righteousness. We overcome by surrendering to these. Let me read the passage. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ Richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So we overcome by surrendering to the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So the Christian is to surrender to the peace of Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to surrender to the peace of Christ? The definition of the word rule gives us a clue. We've actually encountered this same word uh, for rule, a variant of it, this root word used for rule in another verse in Colossians. You see, Colossians is the only place in the New Testament that uses this word or any of its variants. And that other appearance is back in chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, no, let no one keep defrauding you. 
That's the Greek word, katabribrio. I mispronounced it. It's the word for rule. It's katabrabuo. Katabrabuo. It's also here in verse 3, verse 15. It's the root word, brabuo. And it referred to a person who officiated over sporting contests, like an umpire or a referee. The umpire calls the shots and enforces the rules in a sporting contest, right? If you're going to play a sport in any organized sense, both teams must mutually agree to play under the authority of the officials, right? The umpire. Now, a player or a coach may question the umpire and disagree with the umpire and even argue with the umpire. But the decision of the umpire stands over the opinions of the players and the coaches, doesn't it? All must submit to the umpire or the umpire can throw you out, right? And the game doesn't make any sense if people don't submit to the umpire, if they don't agree to to submit and surrender to what the umpire says. Now, there are good umpires and there are bad umpires, right? So I remember being a bad umpire once. Uh, Years ago, one of my friends asked me to be the home plate umpire for one of his son's uh, select baseball teams, uh, one of their games. The, 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 the umpires backed out at the last minute, and so they needed somebody desperately. Otherwise, this game wasn't going to go on. And so they said, Eric, can, can you come and be the umpire? Now, I hadn't played baseball since I was eighth grade, uh, which was a long time ago, um, even back then when I did this umpire thing. And, but I was like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll give it a try. So all you got to do is what, call balls and strikes and maybe an out here and there. And it's like, no, no, no. There's a whole lot you got to pay attention to when you're an umpire. And it's very easy to be a bad umpire. I, I was a bad umpire that day. Thankfully, they knew I was like the last ditch effort. And so they gave me some grace. People should have been like chewing me out because I was such a bad umpire. So the Colossian heretics um, that, that Paul was used this word to refer to them earlier, they were teaching a false philosophy of legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. These guys were bad umpires. They were trying to set themselves up as authorities who got to dictate what happened in their congregation. Paul had told the Colossians that these guys are illegitimate. You don't have to recognize their authority in your congregation, nor in your lives. But the good umpire that you must surrender to is the peace of Christ. You must surrender to the peace of Christ. This peace of Christ was to govern both their personal and their interpersonal lives as Christians. And you see both senses in this verse. The personal sense is apparent by the place that Paul says the peace of Christ ought to rule. It's in your hearts. Peace refers to a ceasing of conflict. It's often initiated by a treaty or a pact or a bond between previously warring parties. It's also, it also can refer to a, a state of inner peace or rest or security. The Christian, when he first comes to Christ in faith, enters into a bond of peace with God. The two parties are no longer at war. They're no longer enemies. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But that alternative sense is also true of the Christian. We have inner rest and peace because of our alliance with Christ. We just sang about that. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, 
as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And Philippians 4, verse 7 says, The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's that sense of inner rest and peace. The peace of Christ is to be the umpire in our believing hearts. And when we obey the will of God, we have his peace within. But when we step out of his will, even unintentionally, we lose his peace inside. The danger to and and that which interrupts the peace of Christ in our hearts is sin. Listen to what Wearsby says here. When a Christian loses the peace of God, he begins to go off in, in directions that are out of the will of God. He turns to the things of the world and the flesh to compensate for his lack of peace within. He tries to escape, but he cannot escape himself. It's only when he confesses his sin, claims God's forgiveness, and does God's will that he experiences God's peace within. David illustrates this perfectly. The great songwriter of Israel spoke of this loss of inner peace that he had in Psalm 32. He says this in verses 3 to 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. His peace was gone. The tender hand of God had turned into a forceful pressure upon him that wouldn't let up. His peace was gone. Once he realized that his sin was eliminating his sense of inner peace, he makes a major course correction. Look what it says in verse 5 and following. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. David confessed his sins and his song returned. And yours will too. This peace in our hearts should lead to praise on our lips. Which is why Paul includes, and be thankful here in this verse. And we'll get into a little bit more on gratitude as we progress through the sermon because it's all throughout. But the next arena that the peace of Christ should rule in is also the interpersonal arena. We had the personal, now we have the interpersonal arena. And this is evident by Paul's words, to which indeed you were called to one body. The body is referring to the church or the congregation. Colossians 1.18 states, he's also head of the body, the church. Verse 24 in chapter 1 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. These are the things... When when Paul talks about the body, he's talking about the church. Individual sin can not only interrupt your inner personal peace, it can interrupt the peace within the fellowship of God's people. And this is where we need to be cautious in not overly relying on our own inner sense of peace when it comes to our decision making and when it comes to our living. We must also pay attention to the peace of the body. I want you to think of Jonah. Think of Jonah in the bottom of a ship headed to Tarshish. He was in sin, but he still had enough inner peace to at least fall asleep down there. And he didn't realize that he was the cause, that his sin was the cause of a major storm happening above deck. 
It may be that your sin has caused tumult in the lives of others and disrupted the fellowship of the body at large. And you don't even realize it. So the peace of Christ is to be the umpire in the personal and in the interpersonal. The context gives us a clue that there was another danger to the Colossians though that, that could have interrupted their peace as a, as a body, their unity as a body. And that is this divided loyalty. If you remember back in verse 11, one of the things that endangered their peace as a body of believers was the diverse cultural, religious, racial, and class backgrounds that comprised their fellowship. And these earthly distinctions were a concern of Paul's. So he reminded them that their new citizenship as believers in Christ was in a kingdom where distinctions like that, they don't matter anymore. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, barbarian or Scythian. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to Christ anymore. Christ in each of them was all that mattered. He didn't care about those distinctions, so they shouldn't either. He loved them whether they were a Jew or a Gentile or a slave or a free, or whether they were a barbarian or a Scythian or a circumcised person or uncircumcised person. Christ is all in all, back in verse 11. He was the source of their peace, the source of the oneness of their body. He was what unified them, Jesus. So go back with me, if you will, in your childhood memories to history lessons you learned in school. Do you recall learning about a period of history called the Pax Romana? You remember that? Raise your hand if you do. Pax Romana, right? Three people remembered Pax Romana. So um, it's a Latin phrase that means the peace of Rome. Roman peace, right? And you recall in history that Pax Romana, when it occurred, it was a period of time after the Republic of Rome fell and it became an empire through Julius Caesar. He was later assassinated and it was after a civil war that ensued after he was assassinated It was ushered in by his successor named Octavius, who was later to be named Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. So the Pax Romana spanned a 200-year period of time, and it marks a time of relative peace and tranquility in that empire. And it took place between Augustus in 27 BC and Marcus Aurelius, who died in 180 AD. So about 200 years And all of the events described in the New Testament and all of the writings of the New Testament took place during this period of time called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And during this time, there was a booming economy brought about by ease of commerce that was enabled by Roman military control of vast swaths of land and territories. The Romans expanded and improved infrastructure in huge ways. The Roman roads are still a marvel of history to this day. Um, They discovered and perfected concrete so that architecture made huge strides under the Romans. In fact, their concrete is superior to our concrete today. And I think, just if I read it correctly about a month ago, we rediscovered the secret sauce of Roman concrete so we can make better concrete nowadays. Anyway, the Romans did a lot of amazing, amazing things. The military kept the borders of the empire safe They reduced crime along Roman roadways by cracking down on piracy and criminal behavior. And the Romans also let provinces under their jurisdiction have a a degree of liberty in terms of how they want to govern themselves. Just pay taxes to Rome. We'll protect you. You can pretty much govern yourself. They were also relatively tolerant for the most part of various religious beliefs. 
They were just fine with pretty much any philosophy or teaching so long as it didn't eventually disrupt the peace of the empire. Now, I want you to think about that and think about the Apostle Paul. Next time you read through the book of Acts, how many times the Romans really started to take notice of Paul when he was accused of being a disturber of the peace? Indeed, when he wrote this epistle to the Colossians, he was in prison for being accused of just that, disturbing the peace of Rome. Paul didn't appeal, though, to the Pax Romana as being the basis for their unity as a diverse group of people. He pointed to the Pax Christos, right? The peace of Christ. Christ was their unifying principle. No culture, no philosophy, no religion, no political power, no people group, no organization, no nation will ever unify their citizens and give them a peace that endures, ever. Only Christ has this power and ability. Only the gospel is the unifying theme that that breaks down walls of hostility that existed in Colossae, that exist today, and makes peace between them. And God does it in every fellowship of believers that seeks him as their all in all. The peace of Christ makes all the difference. Now, it's very appropriate and even a good thing to have an appreciation and even a sense of nostalgia and a sense of loyalty and and a love for our ethnic and cultural backgrounds and our, our nations, our national backgrounds. Paul did himself. He loved his Jewish brethren. Christians should make the best citizens in terms of their loyalty to and love for their country. But for a Christian, all earthly loyalties and devotions must themselves fall under the rule of Jesus Christ. He is the arbiter. He is the umpire that brings about peace in your life and in your fellowship and ultimately in your society and your country. And to the degree that a nation or a people forget that Jesus Christ is their king, to that same degree they lose peace. Your highest loyalty as a Christian is always to the king of kings, to Jesus It's why when we say the Pledge of Allegiance, which I'm proud to do, the phrase under God is so important. We would never pledge allegiance to a nation that claims to be over him or claims to be equal to him. And it's no surprise that the enemies of our country are the ones who are so apt to leave that phrase out of the Declaration of or the, the Pledge of Allegiance. But let's move on. We gain victory over sin and overcome when we gratefully surrender to the peace of Christ. And next, we gain victory over sin and we overcome when we gratefully surrender to the word of Christ. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All throughout this sermon series on Colossians, we've seen just how concerned Paul is with the Colossians' knowledge what it was that they were storing on in their minds, what was going on between their two ears. Chapter 1, verse 9, talks about being filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The next verse, verse 10 of chapter 1, talks about increasing in the knowledge of God. Chapter 2, 2 to 3, Paul was desiring that they would obtain a full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. 
Verse 10 in chapter 3, Paul tells the Colossians that they have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Paul was so concerned about this for the Colossians because they had other people whispering in their ears that and, and this, these other people were minimizing the importance of Christ's word and amplifying the words of false teachers. False teachers that encouraged them to listen to other philosophers, legalists, ascetics, even other spirits, angelic beings who would lead them astray from the purity of the word of truth, the gospel, which is what Paul called the word of Christ in chapter 1, verse 5. And this would cause the word and the message of those peddling falsehood to dwell within them rather than the word of Christ. As I've said numerous times since we've been in chapter 3 and dealing with victory over sin in our lives, the front line of the battle is our minds. The front line of the battle is in our minds. The mind that has the word of Christ richly dwelling within will conquer sin and grow in holiness. I told you that it was a quote from D.L. Moody. I was wrong. It was actually from John Bunyan. Written on the cover of John Bunyan's Bible was this little quote that I love. Either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And how is the word to dwell in us? It's to richly dwell in us. And what does that mean? What does it mean to richly dwell? Well, this week we have visiting with us Mandy's mom. She's right there. She's looking at me. She's ready. Get on with it, Eric. Rose. You guys know Rose. We call her Nana, right? When Nana comes to visit, we make room for her in our home. And our home is pretty cramped with uh, three little kids and basically five adult-sized people living in it. Um, so making room for Nana means we kick Caleb out of his room and he sleeps on the couch downstairs while Nana takes his room and she has a place to rest at night. But if Nana came to live with us or dwell in our home, we'd have to make some major rearrangements to accommodate her, wouldn't we? This is the sense in the phrase, richly dwell. The word of Christ is supposed to take up residence in your personal life. And that dwelling is a rich dwelling. It means you give Christ the master bedroom. You give him the master bathroom, even with the nice soaking tub. You give, the, you give Christ the best recliner in front of the TV. You give him the head of your table at dinner time. You give the best parking spot in your garage to Jesus. In other words, you give the word of God the most room in your life. And to do that, you have to move other things out so that there is room for it. And if your schedule is so full that church on Sunday mornings is the only time you have to devote to Christ's word, you need to be kicking some other things out of your life. If your schedule and your life is so full each day that you don't have time to sit and read and ponder God's word, you're too busy. You've got to kick some things out of your life. If I put them in a side-by-side comparison, listing the amount of time I spend in God's Word and the amount of time I spend watching YouTube, what would that look like? They don't have to be mutually exclusive, by the way. Um, you can fit more of teaching of God's Word in your YouTube time, right? But you've got to kick out some other influencers to get some of that good teaching, right? This is also making room for the Word of Christ, but don't let that substitute your own personal reading and study and devotion to God's word. The word of Christ will transform our lives if we allow it to dwell in us richly. 
We need the word richly dwelling in us so that we will have wisdom to teach and admonish one another. So the word of Christ needs to richly dwell in our congregation as well. Not just in our personal lives, but in our congregation as well. It should have the place of prominence when we gather. It should season our conversations. There should be ample time for the sermon. Ah, At least an hour and a half, right? Right? Eric, you're twisting scripture. Am I? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just picking on some of you that told me my sermon was too long last week. So, okay, it was a little long, all right? The the point is that the, the word of Christ should be the most notable feature of our times of gathering and fellowship. And notice the verse about the importance of the word of Christ also bears upon that which we sing. Part of how we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom is through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our worship together should be saturated with the word of Christ. Songs of praise are some of the great tools in our arsenal for teaching the word of Christ to one another. How we worship is very important. The words we sing in a melodic order are extremely important. Because one of the powerful effects of of music and song is its ability to fix lyrics in our minds. You know, if I play a little riff on the guitar like, you guys are immediately going to know what the sweetest home in the world is, right? Alabama, right? All it takes is that little riff. There's this game that we actually play, right? Where you just play a couple notes of the first song and those few notes can prompt the entire lyric set of that song. Isn't it amazing? What a tool music is to fix lyrics in our minds, to fix truth in our minds. That's why it's so important what we let in in terms of our music. Paul mentions song and singing in other places. Ephesians 5.19 is a big one. It's a very similar passage. In fact, it's a parallel passage. And uh, in, in he, all the same results in, in Ephesians 5 come from being filled with the Spirit. Here, it's letting the Word of Christ dwell within you richly. So the two are one and the same. Being filled with the Spirit is letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's not, it's not some secret mysticism that we have to attain to. Back when Paul wrote these letters in ancient times... The people had not nearly as much access to written material as we do today. They couldn't just grab a Bible off the shelf and read it anytime they wanted it. When letters like the one from Paul to Colossae were received, it was one handwritten copy. It came to the church, and the leadership called the congregation together. And they all sat side by side, listening to the word, listening to the new letter read from start to finish. The way that they let that word dwell within them richly was because they would try to memorize it so that they could recall it to memory throughout their day-to-day life. And one of the main ways they committed so much to memory was through song. They sang together. They sang together all the time. There's evidence that some of the epistles that we read today in the New Testament were actually, parts of them were actually early songs or hymns that they wrote. I mentioned this back when I preached on it, but Colossians 1, 15 to 20, but also Philippians 2, 6 through 11. These are two examples that a lot of theologians believe they, they bear the earmarks of early hymns that the Christians sang together. The Psalms are one of the things that, that, that are mentioned here. They would have been the same Psalms that we read in the Old Testament. They would put them to music and sing them when the gathering of believers took place. The church has always been a singing people. 
And it needs to remain a singing people. When we sing together, we ought to view it as collectively praying to Jesus, his own word back to him. Coming from our hearts that are filled with gratitude for the peace that he gives and for the word that he gives that has transformed our lives and and knit us together with that perfect bond of love. And I can't help but say I'm so thankful for our worship team of singers and musicians here at Grace. Don't they do? I I don't include myself in this, even though I'm a part of it, but they do such a wonderful job of this. They, They may not have this verse in their hearts each week when they lead, but that principle is always present for them. They want to bless you with the word of Christ and compel you to love it and to live it and remember it through song. Our worship here at Grace, I feel like, is a marvelous display of how the word of Christ richly dwells in our gatherings. But let me pry a little bit more here. I mentioned YouTube earlier. Now I'm going to mention Spotify and Apple Music and, and Amazon Music, all these things. What do your playlists look like? Do they reflect that the word of Christ is richly dwelling in you? How would that side-by-side comparison look if I compared praise music versus non-praise or secular music? Do you need a bigger, richer space in your playlists for the word of Christ to dwell? Don't discount the power of a good, word-saturated, gospel-centered song to aid you in your quest to kill sin and grow in holiness. A a glorious song that's rich with the truth of Christ is a powerful ally in conquering our flesh. You know, the word of Christ richly dwelling in us, this resonates deeply with me because in my own testimony, my own life, I have experienced victory over certain sins in my life and I can't deny that that victory is real. And so much of it comes because of this very thing. This is the linchpin that letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it was put to me in a different way called feasting on the word of God. To overcome sin, to overcome some sort of stronghold in your life, the means that you do it, that the very practical means is you feast on the Bible. You consume the Bible. You eat the teaching that is in Scripture you let it consume a huge chunk of your life and you will find victory. You'll find victory over sin. You'll find a growing holiness and you'll find a growing love for him. So, all right, let me move on to the third point. We gain victory over sin and overcome when we gratefully surrender to the name of Christ. Verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So the last few sermons have been about spiritual garments that we wear, taking off the old sinful garments and putting on the new righteous spiritual clothing. And last week I mentioned to you that the clothes we wear oftentimes communicate our association with someone or something. And I gave the illustration of like Gideon's uniform at Culver's. It conveys his association with Culver's as an employee. So Paul concludes this section with the great summarizing principle of the Christian life. And that's this, the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. You know, back in the 80s, there was a fad for us boys to wear sleeveless t-shirts with 
big Chinese writing on them. You guys remember this? Anybody who grew up in the 80s? John, I know you do. You remember the Chinese shirts, the Chinese letters, T-shirts? You don't remember? I remember the uh, cars on it. Okay. Am I the only one who remembers the... It's just me. It was real, I promise. I grew up in the 80s, I know. But it was a huge fashion fad. You know, the bigger the Chinese writing, the more we liked the T-shirt. We thought it was so cool. I don't know if it was because we liked the old Bruce Lee movies or, or whatever. But the funny thing is, none of us had any clue what that writing was on those T-shirts. It's kind of hilarious when I think about it. We didn't have any clue. You know, we could who knows what we were communicating to our Chinese friends and neighbors. We have no idea. You can go to a Chinese restaurant and order some food, and they go back in the back, and you see them looking at you side-eye, and they're snickering like, I wonder what's on my shirt. I have no idea. It could have been saying anything like, I have rabies, or, <laughs> or uh, me dumb American, I like to eat balloons filled with mayonnaise. Who knows what it said? None of us know. And uh, anyway, weird illustration. Sorry, this is exactly the sort of, of carelessness in communication that Paul would be against here, right? Because the great summarizing principle of the Christian life is that we want to display Jesus to those around us when those around us hear us talk and when they see us act. Our words and our deeds are like emblems on our clothes that communicate our association and our identification with Jesus. Paul says, whatever you do. And this is important because it contrasts uh, Paul's mocking description of the false teachers again. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 21, you can probably just look over. It's just a little quote. It's a quote of the false teachers. It's, and I, when, I, when I preached on this last time, I was like, Paul was mocking them, and he was. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, right? It's a list of do's and don'ts that the false teachers were giving. Paul doesn't give the Colossians a, a list of specific do's and don'ts when he tells the Colossians how to live. He just gives them a principle to govern their lives. This means that you as a Christian have a lot of liberty in how you live your life. And that's a good thing. You get to make real decisions for how to live your life. You know, many people are very concerned with finding God's specific will for their lives. And they try to get specific answers to every particular detail of their lives. And they find the exercise frustrating because they can't seem to figure out what it is that God wants them to do in every situation. Well, this verse in Colossians shows us that Paul taught that it doesn't seem that God operates that way. God's will for your life is that you govern it with a concern that the way you live communicates gratitude to God for Jesus. Jesus gave you his peace to rule your hearts. Jesus gave you his word to understand him and what he desires. Jesus gave you new garments of righteousness to wear. Jesus gave his very life to rescue you from your sinful self. Therefore, whatever it is that you decide to do, make your decision with the honor of the name of Jesus in mind. Does this word bring honor to Jesus? Does this plan of action bring honor to Jesus? Did that spontaneous deed or that spontaneous word, did it give honor to Jesus and show God that I'm thankful for him? Does my attitude and all of this seek the glory of Jesus' name? or the glory of my own name? Is my pursuit even of victory over sin done in the name of Jesus 
so that he gets more glory? Or am I seeking to over sin, overcome sin so that Eric's name is more highly esteemed by the people in my life? Our concern in life becomes the honor and the glory of Jesus, not the honor and the glory of ourselves. There's another implication, though, when we think of Paul's phrase here, the name of Jesus. And we don't often think about this in our modern culture, but names convey a degree of authority, don't they? Your name signed to your check authorizes, hence authority, authorizes a withdrawal from your bank account. A bill in our government, it may pass both domains of Congress, but it doesn't become law until the president signs his name because that name carries authority. Similarly, you have a certain authority that is granted to you because you are sealed with the name of Jesus. First and foremost, you have the authority to pray. This is huge. This means you have access to God the Father through God the Son, Jesus, that name. You have permission and welcome because of the name of Jesus to approach and to speak to the sovereign over all the universe, the creator and sustainer of all that is. Colossians 1, 15 to 18 speaks of Jesus. It says, He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. By Jesus, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Amen. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, so that in Jesus will come he will come to have first place in everything. This is Jesus, and it's his name that is on you if you believe in him. And because of this name, you have access to the Almighty and are his friend. The name of Jesus allows you to boldly approach the majestic throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. You have authority to pray because of Jesus. This mean God, means that God hears you because of Jesus. And the authority, this authority that we have in Jesus' name is also a spiritual authority. The name of Jesus is over all spiritual dominions or rulers or authorities. There's no higher authority than that name. All spiritual forces must bow to him, and eventually all human beings and forces will bow to that name also. This means that you are shielded in Jesus. Because of the name of Jesus, you're shielded from spiritual forces or beings that desire to harm you. Oppressive spiritual influences, demonic entities, spirit, evil spirits can be rebuked in the name of Jesus. We see evidence of this activity going on all throughout the New Testament. Evil spiritual forces are stopped dead in their tracks at the name of Jesus. They can't harm or overtake you directly if his name is upon you. But there's a downside to this authority. And we just heard about it in our moment for mission today. This authority and this association that we have in the name of Jesus, Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, he says this, you'll be hated by all because of my name. You see, many in the world, many in the world and all spiritual forces that have rebelled against their creator will hate you because you identify with Jesus. Because of that name, 
You can tell them you're a Baptist or an evangelical free person or a Catholic, but if you tell them you're a Christian and that you follow Jesus, get ready. Get ready. Persecution may come. Jesus describes a growing hostility toward Christians that will swell as history gets closer and closer to the culminating event of Jesus' return. Jesus says that they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you because of my name. Matthew 24, 9. But Jesus in Mark 13 comforts us and he says to all of his children, he promises them, the one who endures to the end though, he will be saved. And this brings us to the final thought and I'm going to conclude. We'll be saved by the name of Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And as we consider all of this that comes to us through the name of Jesus, how can we not give thanks? How can we not give thanks for the name of Jesus? We are friends with God because of Jesus. We have authority and access to pray because of Jesus. The thing we ought to hear for, and the thing he ought to hear first and foremost from all of us when we pray is thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. How can we not thank God for the name of Jesus? Thanksgiving is all throughout Colossians. It's in 1 3, 1 12, 2 7, 4 2, but it's especially concentrated right here in these three verses 15, 16, and 17. We have the peace of Christ. Be thankful. We have the word of Christ. Be thankful. We have the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We are rich and overflowing with every spiritual benefit in Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how can we come before you with hearts of ingratitude when we consider all that you've done for us in giving us the peace of your son, in giving us the word of your son, in giving us an association and an authority under the name of your son. Oh, all of these spiritual treasures are ours in abundance because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And Lord, Lord, how often do we fail to give thanks? Lord, I pray you would transform us. I pray, Father, that each and every one of us, Lord, would, would ponder our own hearts and consider how it is, Lord, we can create a more rich space in our lives for your peace and for your word, for the name of Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that all of us would do that. We would all consider the totality of our lives. And Lord God, are we letting these things guide us? Are we surrendering our lives to these things? To the peace of Christ, to the word of Christ, to the name of Christ.